So I have uh, wanted to take y'all, we looked at Hezekiah as an example already, and I got one more aspect of Hezekiah I'd like for us to get into today, um, because I asked you last week to think about the other side that God's calling you to, to go to and present the gospel to those people, and um, when you engage um, with people and, and talk about Jesus and um, if you're especially engaged in culture and try and push back against the fish or they, the fish or them instead of the fishermen, um, you're going to get some pushback. And there's going to be some things that are going to kind of come against you and um, kind of assault you. Um, and I wanted to use this story of what happens to Hezekiah because he's gone through and he started these reforms. He's rebuilt the temple. He's torn down the high places. And then what happens is king comes from Assyria and um, attacks um, them, attacks the northern kingdom, and they're coming for him. And he hears what's going on. So they begin to make preparations. And um, so when everything seems lost and it seems like it's impossible and there's no way out, um, just remember there's always God. Um, and so in sec- there's, this is recorded in a couple of places in Second Kings chapter 18 and 19. And then in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 32. And I just want us to go through some of the stuff that um, some of the highlights in this. Um, so we can draw out the truths for that. So let's say a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day. I ask you to, to watch over us as we study your word. Give me um, your words. Let this be your study. Um, open our hearts and our minds with your Holy Spirit to um, hear what you want us to hear today so that we can take the actions that please you and we can further your kingdom in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, um, verses 17 and forward to the end of 19 is the this, the story I'm talking about. Um, and so the king of Assyria approaches all these nations around them. And then in... Uh, if uh, somebody has 1833 to 35 in second Kings, you could read that and that'll lift off. This is the pronouncement that the enemy is making. So they're conquering all these places around Israel and they know they're coming. They start doing some preparations to try and prevent themselves from being just taken over and killed. And, um, and so finally the army, the enemy's army reaches them and he, stands up on this aqueduct outside the city and begins to make this grand pronouncement of war against uh, Jerusalem and the nation of Judah and King Hezekiah. And he begins to just level all these criticisms against God, against their God, against Jehovah. Um, And so one of the things he does is he lists off all the people that have already been conquered by his armies. So uh, who has 1833? 34 and 35 could read that. Have the gods of any other nations their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Haman and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iba? Did they rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? Name just one. So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem? Yeah, I think that was a 35. Is that 35? 
Yep. And then we go a little bit forward. He does the same sort of thing in 19, 11 through 13. Could you highlight that for us, please? 11 through 13, the next chapter. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done, whatever they have, wherever they have gone. They have crushed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them? Such nations as Gozan, Haran, Rezabeth, and the people of Eden who were in Talisir. The former kings of Assyria destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Sarbane and Hena and Ibok? So he's listening up all these people. We've already taken care of all these other people. We've already taken them out. So what makes you think you're any different? Um, and then we see the enemy closing in and conquering all these different groups, um, one group after another. And these are people who are following false beliefs and false gods. And they they don't think there's going to be any difference now with uh, as they approach Jerusalem. And um, if you look at Second Chronicles, sorry, I got y'all jumping around. Second Chronicles 32, 1 through 3. And we'll stay in Second Chronicles 32 for a little bit. After Hezekiah had faithfully carried out this work, King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, giving orders to the armies to break through their walls. When Hezekiah realized that Sennacherib also intended to attack Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military advisors. And they decided to stop the flow of the springs outside the city. They organized a huge work crew to stop the flow of the springs, cutting off the brook that ran through the fields. For they said, Why should the king of Assyria's why should the kings of Assyria come here and find plenty of water? That's good for right now. So uh so think about this. Let me try and bring it down to where we are right now. So the enemy um is conquering. One group of believers um, after another and um, replacing what they believe about God um, with these false gods and these false practices of worship. So there's in conquering them one group of believers after another with false beliefs about God. If you think about where the, the church, Big C, is today, um, how many of our, our brothers and sisters have been lost because they have changed what they believed about God and his standards, whether you're looking at... Um, um, you know, women serving as priests, which then leads to homosexuals and lesbians serving as priests, and then leads to uh, what we have with the Episcopalians, that there's more than one way to God. Jesus is just one way among many. And and so you see these people that used to have very strong faith that would defend their faith, and you see them getting conquered one group at a time until you get to the end, and, and you're the only one left that's got the Bible and says, no, 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 this is what we believe, and this is where we stand. And then it leads to um, false practices uh, in worship. King Hezekiah um, tried to encourage the people. In verse 5, it says this. Also, Hezekiah took courage and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised up towers upon it. And he built another wall outside of the main wall to strengthen the Milo of the city of David. And he made weapons and shields in abundance. So he sees what's approaching. He begins to make preparations among the people. He's doing things to protect them because he sees this threat coming. Now, that's one thing that I think is our responsibility as elders 
in the church is we look at see culture today and we I can see what's approaching and um, it is a horde that is coming towards us and their intention is for us to um, submit and change or be eradicated that the belief systems and the way we practice and what we believe and what we say will not be tolerated in the public square at all and so um, so that's what's coming in verse six of that same chapter in second chronicles King Hezekiah he did something else. He took and he set up leaders among the people. Um, and then he let the people lead the people. Now, um, that's what Jesus did. Jesus went out and he gathered up the 12. And then he grew that number to the 72. And then he grew it to 120. It got bigger and bigger. And he set out people in, in smaller groups, 50 and such and that. But he set up the people to lead among the people. So one thing we have to do is we have to set up within ourselves understandings and these watch points where we can see what's coming. And then we have to have shields that protect us from uh, things that are false in worship, especially. So that's why we have to know the Bible. Um, and that will lead on later on. There's a big issue with biblical illiteracy and culture. Um, and we need to make sure we're not part of that. The last thing I'd say he did in verse six was he gathered them together in public. And there's something very powerful about that. In verse six, he says, he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city. And he spoke to them encouragingly. Um, and he said this. So he, he comes and he gives them encouragement in his words. So he's not hiding in the palace away from the threat. He's out among the people and he's giving them encouragement. And he reminds them of two things. He reminds them of who the enemy is and he reminds them of who God is. Verse seven, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there is another with us greater than all those with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us and our Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And I love that. God fights your battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So there's a, there's a known pattern of attack that the enemy is going to bring to us whenever you so last week you had your assignment to identify in your life, where is that not comfortable person to go talk to about this not comfortable subject and discuss with them things of God. So if you look at Second Chronicles 32, look down at verse 11. This is, again, the Sennacherib's proclamation against the people of Israel and Jerusalem. And he says this, he says, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. So the enemy is mocking godly faith. The king has said, we're going to prepare, we see what's coming, um, and God's going to be with us. He's an arm of flesh. We've got the, the king God, spirit God. Jehovah is on our side. This is going to work out. And he begins to mock them again by sight and all these people. We've already taken care of all these other nations and their gods. And what makes your God any different than their God? And then you have to understand this, that the enemy has a false understanding about worship. I heard a story um, this weekend. Um, I've, I had this jury duty thing that came up and postponed and came up and postponed. It's getting coming up again. Um, and they were telling me the story. It was a man in my Bible study and he was in the, he was in the jury process. And they got to the point where they called his number and the lawyers and the prosecutor, the defending people came up and they started to interview him. And they said, uh, sir, I see here that you are a um, Christian. Yes, I am. I see here that you are a deacon in your church. Yes, I am. 
I see here that you teach Bible study every week. Yes, I do. You're dismissed. Really? Really. Really. So the it was a I think it was a murder trial. So the idea is in the minds of people that if you do all those things, if you have a faith that's living and active in the way you in the choices you make, and people can look at you and say, Yeah, they're different. And it's God makes a difference. That you do not have the ability to judge justly because you are so prejudiced with these ideas. They have a false sense of, of, of who you are and what you believe because they have a false image of God. So in my opinion, the, the better thing would be to have that man on the jury so that he would judge more fairly and, uh, and, and say, you know, this is a very serious role I have here. I need to look at this, you know, through the right lens and, and make sure that everything's being done justly here because I want to reflect God and his justice in this situation. Verse 12 says this, has not the same Hezekiah taken away the high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem saying, you shall not worship before one all, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to you, Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem only. Now, remember the high places are bad, right? That's where all kinds of bad stuff go on. All these false gods, these these bad rituals are happening up in these places, up in the mountains. And Hezekiah is one of these kings that comes along and says, you know, we got to stop all that. And so he makes an effort. He goes out and he tears all this down. But the, the, his enemy comes and has a completely false sense of what true worship is and what God expects out of us. And so he thinks that, well, we just worship our gods wherever we want. So it doesn't matter where we worship. We can just make a temple in any old place. We can get this tree and cut it down and carve an image and let's have worship. But God's saying something differently at this time in the nation of Israel. They've taken their practices and their forms of worship and they're imposing them on God's people. And God has at this point in history, one geographical and one point, spiritual point of approaching him. And it's in Jerusalem, it's through that temple and what's going on there. Now, later on, um, after the ultimate Passover sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you know, the point of approach to God will remain spiritually singular. It's only through Christ, only through Jesus. But Jesus says that once this is over, you can worship God anywhere. The geography of God is no longer localized that you have to go to this place to worship God. But the idea that the singularity of who you're worshiping God and how you're approaching God does remain there. And it's only through his son, Jesus. Um, now, then that also leads us to this idea I mentioned earlier about the Episcopalians, and they've changed their statement of faith. That there are now many ways to get to God. And Jesus is just one of many ways that you can reach heaven. You don't need Jesus. He's, you can go some other way. And that's really sad. And that's, you know, there, there are people in churches that believe that today. Um, I'm sure if Pastor Ed has, has survey about the state of the church in America today, there would be a question on there about that. You'd be shocked at the number of people who agree with that statement, that Jesus was just one way. And there are many ways to get there. But what happens is when people begin to walk that path, that spiritual bridge, and it doesn't have Jesus on it, that spiritual bridge has gaping holes in it. And they will never reach the destination they're seeking down that path. The only path you can take is Christ. Now, um, in verses 13 through 14, I'm going to read those to you. Or who, who would someone like to read that? Verses 13 and 14. 
No. So he, yeah, I think Glenn. And so at this point, he's believing that man, people, the resources of the physical world are more powerful than God. He's going to get a, a rude awakening. Adrianity believes that um, that they can overcome God. It's interesting in World War II. At the close of World War II, there's this interesting story you may have heard about it, where uh, Churchill. And uh, Roosevelt and Joseph Stalin are talking about what to do with Eastern Europe and how to divide the countries up. And uh, one of the men, some say it was Roosevelt, some say it was Churchill, said something along the lines of, should we maybe consider the, the viewpoint of the Pope on these matters? And Stalin is said to have looked at him and said, um, so how many divisions does the Pope have in battle again? He relied completely on the God of forces, strength, power, you know, crushing military power. Um, but, you know... If you follow history, it wouldn't be, you know, what, within 50 years or within 40 years of him making that statement. There would be a man in, in, in the Vatican, Pope John Paul II, who would ally himself with an American president, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And they had a plan to bring the Soviet Union down and they executed it. And they didn't have to bring an army to the battlefield. They had God on their side and they brought spiritual forces. They brought ideas, faith and choice. And it, it, it ruined them. The, the, the Soviet empire fell because of that. Um, so let me bring it home to us. So how many, um, let's say, let's, let's, let's look at those words of Stalin and think about this. Our enemy today in America would say, when you're trying to get some aspect of law or culture change, they may say to you, so how many judges do you have on your side? I know y'all passed this law, but I got a judge over here and we've already done an appeal and they've already ruled this is unconstitutional. We're going to start doing this practice again, whether it's, you know, abortion or, you know, whatever you, you pick the issue or how many governors do you have on your side that will sign that law? Because, you know, there are states where governors won't sign that, you know, like in New York, the governor signed the, the law that said you can kill the baby after they're born. No problem. That's just an abortion, just a little slower. We'll do it. Or how many, how about this? How many school boards and principals and teachers do you have on your side that are willing to, um, to go along with sexually mutilating the bodies of little children? Because that's what's going on right now in California. They're a sanctuary state for the sexual mutilation of children. Um, it's really sad. So, and ultimately that whole statement that Stalin made, it's not about the Pope and it's not about the Vatican. By extension, it's about all believers. And ultimately it's about God. Um, our culture has a very false image of God. They have created this image of God in their minds. They base it on everything but the Bible. And um, we must dwell and, and rest and abide in the truth of who God is. And because of who God is, and we believe in God and we take Jesus as our Savior, that makes us different as well. Because of who God is, that changes who we are. Um, Look at verse 19. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth and the work of men's hands. I want to draw your attention to this. There's a, there's a subtle difference going on here. 
If you look at verse 19, there are two falsehoods in this operating system. One is these false spiritual gods. Now, um, I mean, the Bible does say, and you can make the case, that nations have um, gods over them. They have spiritual angelic beings that are the ones over those nations. It's in the book of Daniel. talks about the, uh, the prince of uh, Greece, the prince of Persia, and how that Michael resisted them uh, when he was battling to get the answer of Daniel's prayer from God to him. It took like 21 days or 22 days of fighting to, to get this answer. And he said, now I'm going to leave you and go fight the, the prince of the spiritual little demigod that's in charge of Greece. This before Greece was even an empire, which is interesting when you look at the idea of, of time being different for us than it is in the spiritual world. So they did have these little gods over their nations, and, and they said, well, we've killed all these gods. So there is the physical, I'm going to worship God that can be part of your life, okay? But then there are the false gods created by your hands. Can you think of some false gods people have that they, in their hands? Could be their phones, could be their car keys, could be their golf clubs, could be that boat, you know, it could be their children. I mean, there's a lot of false gods out there that people uh, build their lives around, that you shape your entire life, that you make choices based on this thing. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with phones or boats or babies or any of that kind of stuff. The, the big thing for us we wrestle with is, is prominence in our lives and where is God in relationship to these things? And are we using these things through the lens of God as a gift and a tool um, for his purposes. Um, so I just wanted to draw that out to you. So in verse 25, we also see there's this voice of the false prophet that's uh, going on. In verse 26, um, verse 26 is fascinating to me because when Sennacherib is standing up on this aqueduct, and I'm sure he's in all kinds of regalia with soldiers around him and banners flying. And he's making this proclamation that we're here to kill y'all. And here's what we're going to do. He um, delivers this proclamation of war in Hebrew, which is very clever, right? Because it's the Hebrew nation. They should be speaking Hebrew. But everybody's looking at him like, what are you talking about? And finally, at one point, someone interrupts him and they say, Would you mind saying that in Aramaic? Because nobody here speaks Hebrew. And to me, the people had lost the language of God. Even though they were the people of God. And I think one of the issues with the church today is that we, the people of God, the reason there are problems in churches is because they've lost the language of God, the Bible. And they've become disconnected from that. And that's why they have these troubles and these problems. They don't know their writings of their own God. Um, for us, you know, biblical illiteracy is a, is a shame to us because we are the ones here who are supposed to be sharing the word with people and bringing it up. And then um, it's our problem. It's our task to correct it. The other thing I would say is um, look at verse um, 28. Um, who could read verse 28 for me? For his grain, new wine, and olive oil. And he made many stalls for his cattle and foals for his flocks of sheep and goats. I don't think I'm wrong. (laughs) 
I'm not sure. Let me go back just for a second. I think I switched to Second Kings chapter 18. I'm sorry. Because the story is in two places, but Second Kings chapter 18 has some more detail in it. Verse 28. Then he stood and shouted in Hebrew on the wall. Listen to this message from the great king of Syria. This is what the king says. Don't let King Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you from my power. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying, the Lord will rescue us. This city will never be handed over to the Assyrian kings. So he's um, he's using the language of God, um, Hebrew in this case, and he's using vocabulary they're familiar with, and he's using it deceitfully. But then he, he leads into this, um, and that's the other thing I would just warn you about, is there are people among us, um, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, who will use language that we're familiar with, but those words mean completely different things to them as they enter into discussions with it. Just be careful of that. Look at verse 31 to 32. Would you read that for me, please? Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms of the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then I will allow each of you to continue eating from your own garden and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a country with bountiful harvests of grain and wine, bread and vineyards, olive trees and honey, a land of plenty. Choose life instead of death. Wow. What a great, what a great deal, huh? Who wants to take that one? Yeah. So his, the, the, this is the grand bargain. He's basically saying, here are my terms of surrender. Um, if y'all will submit and become my slaves and I'm your king and you give up this city, y'all can keep all the stuff you like. You want, you want some grapes to grow some wine and have, you can have that. You want those olive trees? You, want the, you can have that. You want to drink your own water? You can have all that. Yeah. I'll let you have all that. As long as you become my slave, the enemy offers us freedom of worship. Okay. Right now in culture, there's this big thing about freedom of worship instead of freedom of religion. And the idea of freedom of worship is you can, you can do anything you want to, unless it stays inside these walls and doesn't leave this property. But once you leave this property, you got to leave your God behind and don't bring him out into culture. Don't bring him out into society. Don't bring him to that, that decision making process at business or don't bring him to that jury box. Whatever you do, don't do that. And that's what he's basically saying here. He's offering them freedom of worship inside these walls, but it's the end of the freedom of the religion because living out our faith is a daily activity we must do inside these walls, but outside these walls. Therefore, we must live our faith out right now while we can, because one day they will come and tell us we cannot live our faith outside these walls. The other thing I think is interesting, I think Glenn's picking up on it, I see that smile on his face, is how does the grand bargain end? You can keep all this stuff, and then we'll have a little relocation program. And there'll be a place like what you have. There'll be a place like what you get. Yeah. And so the the end is you surrender. You can stay exactly where you are and keep all your property. And then I'm going to move you out. Just a matter of time. I'll relocate you. Yes? People now have... Have left the captivity 
and they find out, gee, things a little bit hard. Hey, what were we better off back there? We had peace and we had food. What were we better off back there? Right? Yeah, and they forget the bad stuff. Right. We're going to kill your baby boys and you have to work all the time and get your own straw and yeah, going to beat you. We do. We do forget. So the result of the acceptance of the grand bargain in verse 20, 20 uh, 32, the result is the the reasonable compromise, which is another phrase that people would use with you today. Oh, be reasonable. Come on, can't we compromise? Um, will be the relocation. So if we're not careful to guard it, we will end up with uh, the same thing they end up with. And so here's what I would say Hezekiah's advice to his people is, um, and it's my advice to you, is to doubt your doubts. And believe your beliefs. And you say, well, what do I believe? Well, you know, in about an hour from now, we're going to stand up in the church and we're going to read out loud collectively what we believe about God, Jesus, his Holy Spirit, about us, about now, about the future, about the past. We're going to declare all that. We should believe it. The doubts we have that come to our minds, we should doubt them. But the beliefs, we should believe them. The enemy in verses 32 and 34 is asking the people to doubt God. Because he's saying that all these other gods have failed. Why would your God be any different? And this is the critical point. Second Kings chapter 2. Excuse me. Second Kings uh, chapter 19 verse 1. It says this. And this is a critical point. I want you to get on this. So I don't know what your who your Sennacherib is in your life. It might be a person. It might be um, an event. It might be medical. It might be relational. It might be something that's coming up. It might be a letter you got in the mail. It might be a notice you got from the doctor. It might be a phone call. It might be news. I don't know what your Sennacherib is. I don't know what the thing is. It's surrounding you and pushing in on you. And you look and you go, ain't no way I'm getting out of this one. I want you to look and see what Hezekiah does. He takes basically the scroll that is the declaration of war. And in verse one, and so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went to the house of the Lord. And look at verse 14, it tells us what he did. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. I don't know what your issues are today, but I would encourage you if there's something that you got that you take a piece of paper and you write it on that piece of paper. It doesn't have to be detailed. It can just be one word or three words. And when it comes time for prayer today, that you go up to the altar and you just put that on God's altar and you sit there and you pray like Hezekiah. Um, I will tell you that I actually did this i've done this before in my life i've had to do it i had a um i had a point where i had a massive um debt for business that i could not cover and i all i could do was i took that that statement and i was kneeling down in my prayer at my house and i put it right there in front of me and i said I can't do it. You got to do it. 
only you can make this work. I can't make this work. I know just it's beyond my ability to make this work. God made it work. He worked it out. So I don't know what your, your army is, the horde that's coming to you right now, but I would advise you to follow his, his example. Doubt your doubts, believe your beliefs and put it on the altar for God to take care of. The king put his troubles on the altar before God. And when he did that, God altered his troubles. There's only one letter difference between the altar and the altar. In verse 20 of chapter uh, 19, it says this. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then Isaiah begins to give him all the words of assurance. Now, along the way, Sennacherib told him all kinds of stuff. Different ways he could have gotten out of this situation. He could have gone to the king of Egypt and said, hey, buddy, I'll I'll give you some money. Bring your armies over here and let's fight this guy together. That would have been an alliance with the with a bad, evil king. Egypt always represents the world in scripture. He could have submitted and said, well, it's all over, people. I did the best I could. We just have to give in. But he didn't. He prepared. He prayed. He gave it to God. When um, God can take our problems and then he can turn them into his purposes. Look at verse 25. It says this, and this is, this is just, just try and wrap your mind around this just for a moment. The same way God formed the world. Let's just stop right there for a second. We believe God spoke this world into existence and he made it, he made everything around us. He made it with plans and purposes. The same way that God formed this world, God has formed all the events in the world. And that means that God has formed whatever is going on in your life right now. And that reality should bring peace to you. Because God is never surprised. He's not surprised by life. He's not surprised by us. Who has verse 25? Would read it. But it was I, the Lord, who decided this long ago. Long ago, I planned what I am now causing to happen: that you should crush fortified cities into heaps of rubble. God planned it, and it was for His purposes that all this was happening, and He's going to execute it as well. God. Um, Then, in verse 35, would you read 35 for me? That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. When the surviving Assyrians awoke in the morning, they found corpses everywhere. And that was the end of it. Isaiah had told and promised the king that not even one little arrow is going to be shot against this city. Nobody's going to take over this place. God's got this. And he he received that word from the prophet and he believed it. And then God acted. So God 
um, slaves our problems to fulfill his purposes. And that leads me to this idea that when we are engaged in the struggles of life, it's important for us to remember that that person, if it's a boss or a neighbor or some relative or a friend or an acquaintance, that person and the words they're using that hurt us or the things they're doing that wound us, that person is not our enemy. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against dark spiritual forces. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. There is. So remember this, that that person. And I would say there's no person in your life today who is presenting you with pain and trouble and difficulty, who was not in the mind of God when Christ died. Jesus' blood was shed to forgive them as well. It wasn't just shed for some people, it was shed for all people. And one day, that person will leave this world, and the one thing they're going to need about everything else the one thing they will need above everything else is the forgiveness that only Christ can give them. And right now we are the repository of that forgiveness because we have the knowledge of the gospel and we possess the faith and we can share it with them. So the enemy is bringing a bad purpose and pain into your life because of people and events that are happening, but God is forming that and he's giving us the opportunity to reach somebody that would never be reached in another situation. And we have the opportunity right now to reach that person that would be impossible to reach in other circumstances, but we have the chance to do it now. So I'd encourage you to share your faith with people who cause pain in your life because it is a purpose of God that came into our existence and we are the messengers of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the story of faithful kings like Hezekiah. Uh, Thank you for the uh, story of even our enemies, Sennacherib. And thank you, Lord, uh, for the faithful example of how you reach in and you uh, change circumstances and people and situations and help us to be aware of that this week um, as we encounter painful things and difficult situations. Remember that the person we're dealing with is someone you love and you died for. And the ultimate purpose of us in their life is to share the gospel with them. Give us courage to do that and the words to make it happen. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.